Welcome to online worship at Chandler United Methodist Church. You know, oftentimes each of us comes into a place of worship looking for deeper meaning in our lives. And being followers of Jesus means if we have questions about life, we go ask Jesus. Jesus talks about meaning in this life a lot. He says as much as we would like to be able to align and serve both the way of the world and the way of God, they do not line up. And eventually we are brought to a choice. Jesus says choosing the way of God, being honest and decent, living with intention about the effect of our choices, the outcomes of our decisions, acting with compassion and giving sacrificially <clears throat> are all ways of deepening meaning in this life. I want to invite you to make use of the resources available on our church website to deepen meaning in your life. Well, I hope you read the scripture passage for today. We read this passage about the raising of a dead man, and right away we have questions to get answered. I think of two right now. The first is, what does Jesus mean when he says, unbind him? What does it mean to let loose someone whose existence and voice has been surrendered in death? Wouldn't it be nice if, in answering that question, there was some instruction on what Jesus means by unbind him? And since we're wishing a detailed list, like a job description, <clears throat> a task list maybe prioritized in numeric sequence, since we're wishing, the second question that comes to mind, echoes pretty loudly out of this passage, is why did Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead in the first place? Is it because Jesus is sad? Because he misses his friend? It's a little tricky question. Uh, Jesus has stated that he is on his way to his own execution, so as it stands, he is planning on seeing Lazarus rather soon, is he not? Why raise him from the dead? I mean, Jesus could just say to Martha, I will tell your brother hello for you. So that's two questions. What does it mean to unbind? And why does Jesus raise Lazarus in the first place? I feel a little bit like a police officer who has rolled up in the cruiser. I, I feel like an investigator trying to piece together the whole story. And I think the story begins in the 8th chapter of John. Jesus is on the temple grounds for Passover. Throngs of people are gathering and listening to him. The religious authorities do not like this. They feel their authority is slipping away. And into the midst of this crowd around Jesus, the religious leaders drag a woman whom they say they have caught committing adultery. If they can embarrass Jesus in front of the crowd, he will be humiliated 
and no longer have any authority. <clears throat> so binding up this woman, they lay a trap, which they are sure Jesus will never escape. But he does escape, and he ensnares the accusers. You know the story. The religious authorities are humiliated. We read that one by one they slink away. We stop reading, and we call it a good story. But the story is not over. They come back. Later in the 8th chapter of John, they accuse Jesus of being a despised foreigner, a magician, or the devil. He turns the conversation back on them. He asserts his messiahship and his authority come from God, and he calls them liars for claiming their authority comes through a connection with God. Then Jesus asserts his own relationship with Abraham, and since the religious authorities believe that their birthright as descendants of Abraham is the cornerstone, the foundation of their connection with God. Jesus manages to offend their nationalism, and he reinterprets messiahship, and he offends them in the process. And we know this because John 8, verse 58 reads, They picked up stones. And then a little bit later it reads, And Jesus slipped away. <clears throat> This happens again in John chapter 10, right before the raising of Lazarus. Jesus is on the temple grounds during Hanukkah, where he finds himself surrounded by people who are demanding of him, if you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. He has already asserted his messiahship, so we don't have to be brilliant detectives to recognize their motives are not sincere questions about faith or belief. They have come at Jesus with an agenda. They are trying to trap him again. Jesus responds, my sheep hear my voice and follow me. He just told them they are lost. Then he tells them there are other sheep that do not belong to his fold whom he longs to bring in. Jesus is speaking of people outside the tribes, outside the tribes of Israel, foreigners, Gentiles, like Roman soldiers patrolling the streets. <clears throat> The religious leaders have this expectation that they are unique as the chosen people and that the Messiah will be the one who unifies the flock of Israel and leads them to triumph over the Roman Empire. Jesus has just told them that he includes foreigners among his flock and that means he has told these leaders of the nation that they are not exceptional that the nation is not exceptional. Do you see it? Jesus has again reinterpreted the meaning of messiahship and he has challenged their nationalism. John 10 verse 31 reads, they picked up stones again 
And a little while later, it says, again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. Are you noticing the pattern here? <clears throat> it happens one other time. This time is near the beginning of his ministry. It is recorded for us in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4. Uh, why don't you take a moment and pause this recording and find that in the Bible, however you read the Bible, Luke chapter 4. Jesus stands up in his hometown synagogue to read the scripture. In the process, he edits together portions of two passages, which is permissible. He reads from Isaiah 58 and from Isaiah 61. And then he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight for the blind, and to let the oppressed go free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Uh, um, <clears throat> I, I know that we are in the midst of an investigation and we have just noticed a pattern and we had come here to follow that pattern and see if it repeats, but um, this looks like some kind of a detailed list, like a a job description, a, a task list prioritized in numeric sequence. I wonder if this would be Jesus' answer to how we would go about unbinding someone dressed for the grave who has no voice. My, my eye is also drawn to how Spirit of the Lord in line one lines up with Year of the Lord in the final line, line seven. Spirit of the Lord, Year of the Lord, the kingdom of God in human existence in real time. In line two, preach good news. That's echoed in line six, proclaim. This is proclamation of good news. Line three, unbinding captives, is heard again in line five, release of the oppressed. This is justice work. And then right in the middle, the most important thing, line four, is recovery of sight for the blind. This is the work of compassion. <clears throat> These are three tasks that Jesus is listing for living in the kingdom of God. Proclamation, justice work, and compassion ministry together bring the kingdom of God. These are three areas that constitute the identity of the church. What it means, in fact, yes, what it means to unbind grave clothes. And the coolest thing here is whether you come at it from the top down or you come at it from the bottom up, the message is the same. The order holds. And I commend this to your consideration, what it means to be the church, what we are to do as the church. We should also, though, include in our thinking that outer boundary of line one and line seven, the threshold of what it means to be the body of Christ is our submission to the way of God 
seen in the messiahship of Jesus. Without this submission, we're not the church. Until we subject our motives and our intentions and our methods to, the, to a conversation with God, and we judge them against the way of God, there are, then unless we do those things, we're no different than Jesus' hometown folks coming into that realization that a relationship with God meaning, means a lot more than a celebration of our exceptionalism or deciding that God is blessing our wealth and success and so forth. In his hometown synagogue, Jesus reads from the prophet Isaiah. <clears throat> the part from chapter 58 about how to recognize the Messiah, the one proclaiming good news to the poor, the one offering sight to the blind, the one advocating release to the captives. He is telling his hometown people that the Messiah is focused on the work of God's kingdom, proclamation, justice, and compassion, and is not interested in preserving their feelings of exceptionalism. He has just reinterpreted messiahship. He then goes on and he reads the part from Isaiah 61 about who is included, and this is all about foreigners people from other nations and he's saying these folks are the ones included in my messiahship he leaves out the patriotic part about how all the foreigners will end up working in our fields of our glorious nation and their money will end up in our pockets as God puts them in their place and we will have it made in the shade and it will be a day of justice serving us when the messiah comes and then he reminds them that God has been working exclusively in foreigners, like the widow from Sidon and Naaman the Syrian, because the chosen people of Israel were too pride-filled and indifferent and committed obstinately to ways that are not God's ways. He has just challenged their love of nation. And the people in worship rise up and try to run him off a high cliff. Jesus passes from their midst. He walks through the crowd and goes on his way. I do think we have a pattern here. This time in Luke 4 in the synagogue and the two times in John when people picked up rocks show that when Jesus tells people his messiahship is not about their exceptionalism or the greatness of their nation, they respond by trying to kill him. That is the pattern. The story, though, is not yet done. Because right after the second time people pick up rocks comes our text today, the raising of Lazarus in John 11. So why exactly did Jesus raise Lazarus? Right after Jesus raises Lazarus, there is a meeting of the Sanhedrin, the, the council of the leaders 
who had made peace with the Roman occupation force, the empire, by playing along with their power. The understanding was something along the lines of, we will submit to the power of the empire and we will nod approval to the violent abuses used to keep people in line. In exchange, we expect to be allowed to rule over our own people as we see fit. In this meeting that takes place after the raising of Lazarus, the members of the Sanhedrin say to one another, if we allow Jesus to go on, everyone is going to believe he's the Messiah, <clears throat> and we will lose even more credibility. And then they wrap that fear in their national fear that the Romans are going to tear down this beautiful temple our nation has spent all these years and all this money building. They too are interpreting messiahship and nation. Caiaphas, the chief priest, the high priest, says to the group, it is better for us that this one man dies than that the whole nation perishes. Messiahship and nationalism. What is better for us? That is how they have decided they're going to recognize the Messiah. What is better for us? And that's how they've decided the purpose of their nation. What is best for us? The religious leaders in this conference meeting choose to deny the messiahship of Jesus and they wrap their motives in protecting their nation. And from that day forward, they plot together to kill Jesus. For some reason, when people who feel the power which they have amassed by manipulating, lying, and using violence, when they feel that power unseated by justice, for some reason, when people who have intermixed their love of nation with their understanding of the Messiah, when those people are told that their way is not God's way, for some reason, when people who have decided that foreigners are subhuman are told that those people they call foreign are, in fact, their equal in the eyes of God and that God demands compassion, people become quite capable quite capable of picking up rocks, quite capable of acting as a mob to run a man off a cliff, quite capable of conspiring together to bind others in the clothes of death. It is better for us that others die. And they nod their heads as they look at one another and they call it right. I'm sure you're hearing it. The chord which is resonating through this entire story is authority and the question of who has it. Religious men say, we have authority. Angry people in mobs holding rocks say, we have authority. 
empires lording it over smaller nations and their subjects proclaim we have authority. In the first century, the most powerful force was the Roman army. Its authority came with its ability to impose destruction and death. Quite intimidating. And the choice was rather clear, cooperate or die. The ultimate threat of this empire, the Roman Empire, was death. For its cooperative citizens, Rome offered the promise of the state. Offer us your devotion, your obedience, your loyalty, and we will protect you. For anyone who found the methods of enforcement, which the Romans were prolific at using, to be unappealing and dared to speak against the barbaric use of torture, faced death. What we see in the raising of Lazarus, here's why Jesus raised Lazarus. What we see in the raising of Lazarus is Jesus' peaceful response to authority attempting to assert itself with threats and with violence. When Jesus called Lazarus from the grave, he was clearly stating to anyone who would hear, your biggest threat puts no fear in me. He was speaking to the men who brought the woman they caught in adultery. He was speaking to the religious authorities. He was speaking to people who held rocks. He was speaking to the Roman Empire. Your biggest threat puts no fear in me. I have authority over death. The raising of Lazarus is a direct confrontation to any empire or government or gathering or mob or organization or party that would impose its authority by force. The raising of Lazarus is also a bottomless well in support of anyone suffering at the hands of such intimidating forces. But it is not a call to battle. It is not an inciting of armed rebellion. It's not an insurgent revolt. The minute that Jesus fights back against forces on this earth, he loses. And as followers of Jesus, the minute we fight back and take up arms, we lose. The meaning of this text which comes roaring out of an empty grave to be heard by all the world. The meaning of this text is, to all who believe in the absolute authority of government, or empire, or group, or party, to assert what is right. To all who seek, to anyone who seeks what is better for us at the expense of others. To anyone who gathers about ourselves our grave clothes while keeping silent for fear of death. The meaning of this text, the raising of a dead man in response to the threat of violence, is this. You do not have final word. God does. Trust in God.
Now, we have been about this investigation, and since we are good investigators trying to get the whole story, <clears throat> you might be wondering, what does this mean for we who follow Jesus? It means we may die. We offer our devotion, our loyalty, our obedience. We submit our life to God's way because we believe God has the final word. And that in God's time, God will speak. We believe that God has the final word. And that in God's time, God will speak. Finally, there is the matter of all of those times that people tried to kill Jesus and then could not. In John 8, the mob picked up stones but Jesus slipped away. In John 10, again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. In Luke 4, they drove him out to the brow of the hill in order to throw him down, but he walked through the crowd and went on his way. All of these are comments about who has authority, and they are demonstrations. God's way is in Jesus stronger than anything that the world can muster. Our Messiah is not just gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Our Messiah stares down a deadly mob and they clear a way for him. Our Messiah reveals the utter weakness of all the people we regard as most powerful. Our Messiah has the authority rooted in knowing whom to fear, the one who can destroy the soul and the body in hell. <laughs> and that is good news to the poor. Our Messiah has the authority to show as absurd anyone who spins many words but have nothing to say and it sets the captive free. Our Messiah's authority reveals corruption and causes the blind to see. Our Messiah even has authority over death and he unravels our fear. Our Messiah can unbind every one of us, no matter how wrapped up we are. This is the depth of the God we worship and the Messiah we follow. May the Spirit of God, whom we know through the person of Jesus, go before to show you the way, behind to nudge you forward when you are too frightened to move, above to watch over you, beside to be sometimes the only friend you have and within to give you peace. Be always in peace. Amen.